twenty. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. It was the stillness that made them so frightening. It was not easy to view city streets and crowds via a scene sphere. The spheres were made to display nearby faces, not vast scenes. And what Wrath's lieutenant and shadow had to show us, by slowly panning his sphere in a circle, was vast. There were dozens of maskers, hundreds. They filled the streets. In the promenade, where normally pilgrims jostled with street performers and artists for space, there were only maskers. Along the avenue of nobles, right up to the steps of the salon, maskers. Just visible amid the trees and flowers of Gateway Park, maskers. Approaching from South Route, their shoes stained by street muck, maskers. We could see many fleeting forms that were not maskers, most of them hurrying in the opposite direction, some of them carrying whatever they could on horses or wheelbarrows or their own hunched backs. The people of Shadow were no strangers to magic, having lived among godlings for decades and in the shadow of sky for centuries. They knew trouble when they smelled it, and they knew the appropriate response, run. The maskers did not molest the unmasked. They moved in silence and unison when they moved. Most of them stopped moving when they reached the center of shadow, then just stood there, utterly still. Men and women, a few children, not many, thank me, a few elders. No two masks were alike. They came in white and black. Some were marbled like Echo's substance. Some were red and cobalt blue and stony gray. Some were painted porcelain, some clay and straw. Many were in the high northern style, but quite a few displayed the aesthetics and archetypes of other lands. The variation was astonishing. And they were all looking up at sky. We, Shahar and Dakarta and I, and a good number of the high bloods and servants, stood in what would doubtless come to be called the Marble Hall, given the usual Amun naming conventions. For some reason known only to Yaney, the walls of the chamber were streaked with a deep rust color, interspersing white and gray, which made the whole room look washed in blood. There was some wry symbolism in this, I suspected, some element of Yaney's morbid sense of humor. I was apparently too mortal to get the joke. Wrath was gone, though his soldiers were present, guarding the doors and the balcony. It had been his suggestion to gather all the high bloods together, easier to guard. While we waited for him to say when we could leave, no time soon, I gathered, some servant had brought the large scene sphere from the Scrivener's storage, setting it up on the room's single long table. Through this, we were able to behold the ominous stillness in the streets of shadow. Are they waiting for something? Asked a woman who bore a half-blood mark. She stood near Romina. He put a comforting hand on her back while she stared at the hovering image. Some signal, perhaps, he replied. For once, he was not smiling. But long minutes passed, and there was no movement on the part of the maskers. The person panning the sphere stood atop the salon steps. On the other end of the ark's wing, we could glimpse Aramary soldiers, clad in the white armor of the Hundred Thousand Legions, hastily setting up barricades and preparing for a defensive battle. Even in such brief glimpses, however, we saw enough to despair. 
the bulk of the Aramary army was outside the city, in a vast complex of permanent barracks and bases stationed a half-day's ride away. Everyone assumed the attack, when it came, would be from beyond the city. The army was no doubt marching and riding and gathering into the city as fast as it could now, but those of us who had seen the maskers in action knew that it would take more than soldiers to stop them. I turned to Shahar, who stood on one of the elevated tiers around the chamber's edge. She wrapped her arms around herself as if cold. Her expression was too blank to be intentional. In the whole room, where her relatives clustered in twos and threes and comforted each other, she stood alone. I considered her for a moment, then stepped away from Deka and went to her. Her head turned sharply toward me as I approached. She was not at all in shock. A subtle shift transformed her posture from the lost girl of a moment before to the cold queen who had tried to enslave her brother. But I saw the wariness in her. She had lost that battle. Deka watched me go to her, but did not join us. Shouldn't you contact Remeth? I asked. I kept my tone neutral. She relaxed, fractionally, acknowledging my unspoken offer of truce. I've tried. Mother hasn't answered. She looked away through the translucent walls at the lowering sun, west toward sky. There's no point in any case. The army is there and under Mother's command as it should be, along with the bulk of the Scrivener and Assassin Corps and the nobles' private forces. Echo is barely functional and understaffed as it is. We have no help to offer. Not all support must be material, Shahar. It still felt strange to remember that Rimeth and Shahar loved each other. I would never get used to Aramary behaving like normal people. She glanced at me again, not so sharply this time, considering. Then Ramina said, Something's happening, and we all grew tense. There was a blur in the air a few feet above, and to one side of the image we'd been watching. The soldiers reached for their weapons. The highbloods gasped, and one cried out. Deka and the other scriveners tensed, some pulling out pre-made, partially drawn sigils. Then the image resolved, and we saw Rimeth. The image was angled oddly, over her shoulder and slightly behind her. The sphere must have been set into her stone seat. Facing her, in Sky's audience chamber, was Usain Dar. Shahar caught her breath and moved down the steps, as if she meant to step through the image and aid her mother. The soldiers in Sky's audience chamber had drawn their weapons, swords, and pikes, and crossbows. They did not attack, however. Rimeth must have warned them off, though two of her guards, Dar women, had moved to stand between Rimeth and Usain, crouching with hands on their knives. Usain stood proud and fearless at the center of the room, ignoring the guards. She had come unarmed, though she did wear traditional Dar battle dress, a leather-wrapped waist, a heavy fur mantle that marked her as a battlefield commander, and armor made of thin plates of flake spar, a light, strong material the Dar had invented a few decades back. She looked taller when she wasn't pregnant. I take it we have you to thank for the spectacle below, said Remeth. She drawled the words, sounding amused. Usain inclined her head. I thought she would speak in Dar, given her nationalism. But she used clear, ringing Sinmite instead. It is not our preferred way of doing battle, we in the North. To use magic even our own feels cowardly, 
she shrugged. But you, Aramary, do not fight fair. True, said Remeth. Well then, I expect you have demands. Simple ones, Aramary. Family name only was the way Dar addressed formidable opponents. A mark of respect by her terms. To Amon, of course, it was blatant disrespect. I and my allies, who would be here if it had not taken all our dimmers and magicians to get even one person through your barriers, demand that your family give up its power and all trappings thereof. Your treasury, 50% of it to be given to the nobles' consortium, to be distributed equally among the nations of the world. 30% will go to the Order of Etempus and all established faiths that offer public services. You may retain 20%. You may no longer address the nobles' consortium. It is for them to say whether Sky and Shadow can retain its representative. Disband your army and distribute its generals among the kingdoms. Relinquish your scriveners and spies and assassins and all your other little toys. Her eyes flicked toward the dark guards, full of contempt. I did not see whether the women reacted to this or not. Send your son back to the Lataria? You don't want him anyway. Nearby, Deca's jaw flexed. Send your daughter to foster in some other kingdom for ten years so she can learn the ways of some people other than you murderous high-handed Amun. I will leave the choice of kingdom to you. She smiled thinly. But Dar would welcome her and treat her with such respect as she is capable of earning. Like hells will I live among those tree-swinging barbarians, snapped Shahar, and the other highbloods murmured in angry agreement. Usain went on. In short, we demand that the Aramary become just another family and leave the world to rule itself. She paused, looking around. Oh, and leave this palace. Sky's presence profanes the lady's tree. And frankly, the rest of us are tired of looking up at you. You will henceforth dwell on the ground where mortals belong. Rimeth waited a moment after Hussein fell silent. Is that all? For now? May I ask a question? Usain lifted an eyebrow. You may. Are you responsible for the murders of my family members? Rimeth spoke lightly, but only a fool would not have heard the threat underneath. You, in the plural, obviously. For the first time, Usain looked unhappy. That was not our doing. Wars of assassination are not our way. Left unspoken was that wars of assassination were very much the Amun way. Whose then? Call. Usain smiled, but it was bleak. Call Avenger, we call him, a godling. He has been of great help to us, me and my forebears and our allies. But it has since become clear that this served his own agenda. He merely used us. We have broken ways with him, but I'm afraid the damage is done. She paused, her jaw tightening briefly. He has killed my husband and numerous members of our warrior's council. Perhaps that will seem a consolation to you. Rimeth shook her head. Murder is never a thing to be celebrated. Indeed. Usain regarded Rimeth for a long moment, then bowed to her. It was not a deep bow, but the respect in the gesture was plain. An apology, unspoken. Call has been declared an enemy by the peoples of the North, but that does not negate our quarrel with you. Naturally. Remeth paused, then inclined her head, a show of great respect in Amun terms, since the ruler of the Amun had no need to bow to anyone. By Dar standards, 
it was probably an insult. Thank you for your honesty, Rimeth added. Now, as to the rest, your demands regarding my family, no. Usain raised her eyebrows. That's all? No? Were you expecting anything else? I could not see Rimeth's face well, but I guessed that she smiled. Usain did too. Not really. But I must warn you, Aramary. I speak for the people of this world. Not all of them would agree with me, I will admit, as they have spent too many centuries under your family's control. You have all but crushed the spirit of mortal kind. It is for their sake that I and my allies will now fight to revive it, and we will not be merciful. Are you certain that's what you want? Rimeth sat back, crossing her legs. The spirit of mortal kind is contentious, Usain Enu. Violent, selfish, without a strong hand to guide it. This world will not know peace again for many, many centuries, perhaps ever. Usain nodded slowly. Peace is meaningless without freedom. I doubt the children who starve to death before the bright would agree. Usain smiled again. And I doubt the races and heretics your family have destroyed would consider the bright peace. She made a small gesture of negation with her hand. Enough. I have your answer, and you will soon have mine. She lifted a small stone that bore a familiar mark, a gate sigil. She closed her eyes, and a flicker later, she was gone. The lower image, of shadow and the silent maskers, jolted abruptly, drawing our eyes. There was a brief blur of motion, which grew still as the soldier who held the sphere set it down. We saw him then, a young man in heavy armor marked with seven sigils, one on each limb, one on his helmet, one on his torso, and one on his back. Simple magic of protection. He held a pike at the ready, as did the other men, all in the same armor that we could see. Their armor was white. I suppose Rimeth hadn't gotten around to re-equipping her army to symbolize the family's new divine allegiance. And beyond them, the maskers had begun to move. Slowly, silently, they walked toward the soldiers that we could see. I could only assume that beyond the image, the scene was being repeated throughout shadow. All of the masks that we could see, in every color, were tilted upward, paying no attention to the soldiers before them, fixed on sky. How does she command them? Decca murmured, frowning as he peered at the image. We were never able to determine. His musings were drowned out by noise from both images. Out of view, someone shouted to the soldiers, and the battle began as volleys of crossbow bolts shot toward the masked ranks. Already, we could see that the bolts did almost nothing. The maskers continued forward with arrows jutting from chests, legs, abdomens. A handful went down as their masks were split or cracked, but not enough, not nearly enough. In the higher image, Rimeth barked orders to the soldiers in her audience chamber. We saw hurried movement, chaos. Amid this, however, Rimeth rose from her throne and turned to face it. She leaned forward and touched something we could not see. Shahar? Shahar started, coming forward. Mother, you must come here, of course. We are ready to accommodate. No. Her quiet negative struck Shahar silent, but Rimeth smiled. She was calmer than I had ever seen her.
I have had dreams, she said, speaking softly. I've always had them for whatever reason, and they have always, always come true. I have dreamt this day. I frowned in confusion. Dreams that come true? Was that even possible for mortals? Remeth was a godling's granddaughter. In the image below her face, the maskers charged forward, running now. The sphere's range was too small to capture more than a segment of chaos. For brief stretches, there was nothing to see, interspersed with blurring glimpses of shouting men and still inhuman faces. We barely noticed. Shahar stared at her mother, her face written with anguish as if there were no one else in the room, nothing else that she cared about. I put a hand on her shoulder because for a moment it looked as though she might climb onto the table to reach Remeth. Her shoulder, beneath my hand, was taut and trembling with suppressed tension. You must come here, mother, she said tightly. No matter what you've seen in some dream, I have seen the sky fall, said Remeth, and Shahar jerked beneath my hand, and I have seen myself die with it. In the other image, the one in the large sphere, there were screams. A sudden, loud concussion that I thought might have been an explosion. And suddenly, the sphere was jostled from its place, falling toward the salon steps. We heard the crunch as it broke, and then the image vanished. The other image, Remus's image, shuddered a moment later. And she looked around as people exclaimed in alarm behind her. They had felt the explosion, too. Why did you have the lady build Echo if not to come here? Shahar was shaking her head as she spoke, wordless negation despite her effort to speak reasonably. Why would you do this, mother? I have dreamt of more than sky. Remeth suddenly looked away from Shahar, her gaze settling on me and Deka. I have seen all existence fall, Lord Sia. Sky is merely the harbinger. Only you can stop it. You and Shahar and you, my son. All three of you are the key. I built Echo to keep you safe. Mother, said Decca in a strained voice. This, she shook her head. There's no time. She paused suddenly, looking away as a soldier came close and murmured to her. At her nod, he hurried away, and she looked at us again, smiling. They are climbing the tree. Someone in the marble hall cried out. Ramina, his face taut, stepped forward. Remeth, goddammit, there's no reason for you to stay if... Remeth sighed with a hint of her usual temper. I told you, I have seen how this must go. If I die with Sky, there is hope. My death becomes a catalyst for transformation. There is a future beyond it. If I flee, it all ends. The Eremary fall, the world falls. The decision is quite simple, Ramina. Her voice softened again. But will you tell her? I wondered at this as Ramina's jaw flexed. Then I remembered. Murad. She wasn't present, no doubt trying to assist Rath in preparing for the possibility of an attack. I hadn't realized Ramina knew about them. But then, I supposed, he was the only one Rimeth could have trusted with the secret. No doubt, Morad knew about Ramina fathering Remeth's children, too. The three of them were bound together by love and secrets. I'll tell her, Ramina said at last, and Remeth relaxed. I will, too, I said, and she started. Then slowly, 
she smiled at me. Lord Sia, are you beginning to like me? No, I said, folding my arms. It was Morad whom I liked, but I'm not a complete ass. She nodded. You love my son. It was my turn to flinch. Very carefully, I avoided looking at Deka. What the hells was she doing? If any of us got through this, the whole family would find some way to use my relationship with Deka against him. Perhaps she simply thought he could handle it. Yes, I said. Good. She glanced at Deka, then away, as if she could not bear to look at him. From the corner of my eye, I saw his fists clench. I could protect only one of them, Lord Sia. I had to make a choice, do you understand? But I, I did what I could. Perhaps someday you... She faltered silent, throwing another of those darting glances at her son. I looked away so that I wouldn't see what passed between them, and saw others doing the same around the room. This was too intimate. The Aramary had changed indeed since the old days. They no longer liked to see pain. Then Remeth sighed and faced me again, saying nothing. But she knew I felt certain. I nodded minutely. Yes, I love Shahar too. For whatever good that did. It seemed to satisfy Remeth. She nodded back. As she did this, there was another shudder in sky, and the image began to flicker. Decca murmured something in God's language, and the image stilled. But I could see the instability of the message. Color and clarity whisked away from the image's edges like smoke. Enough. Rimeth rubbed her eyes, and I felt sudden sympathy for her. When she lifted her head again, her expression held its usual briskness. The family and the world are yours now, Shahar. I have no doubt that you will do well by both. The image vanished, and silence fell. No, Shahar whispered. Her knuckles, where her hands gripped the chair, were a sickly white. No. Deka relented at last and came over. Shahar. She rounded on him, her eyes wild. My first thought was, she's gone mad. My second thought, when she grabbed Deka's hand, then mine, and I realized her intent in the same instant that magic washed through me like the arc of light that heralds a star's birth, was demon shit. Not again. We became we. As one, we reached forth with our hand, unseen and yet fast, and picked up the bobbing, lonely moat that was Echo. And it was as one that we sent that moat west, hurtling across the world so rapidly that it should have killed everything inside. But part of us, Deka, was smart enough to know that such speed was fatal for mortals, and we shaped the forces of motion around the moat accordingly. And another part of us, me, was wise in the ways of magic, and that part murmured soothingly to the forces so they would be appeased, or else they would have backlashed violently against such abuse. But it was the will, Shahar, Shahar. Oh, my magnificent Shahar, who drove us forward, her soul fixed on a singular intent. Mother. We all thought this, even I, who hated Remeth, and even Decca, whose feelings toward her were such a morass that no mortal language could encompass it. The first tongue could, Maelstrom. And for all of us, 
mother meant different things. For me, it was a soft breast, cold fingers, the voice of a god with two faces, Naha, Yeni, whispering words of love. For Shahar, it was fear and hope and cold eyes warming fleetingly with approval and a single hug that would reverberate within her soul for the rest of her life. For Deka, ah, my Deka. For Deka, mother meant Shahar, a fierce little girl standing between him and the world. It meant a child godling with old, tired eyes, who had nevertheless taken the trouble to smile kindly at him and stroke his hair and help him be strong. For this, we kept control. The palace slowed as we approached sky and shadow. We saw everything, everywhere within the scope of our interest. On the ground, just outside the city, a small force of warriors, northerners from many nations. Usain Dar was among these, sitting on the back of a small swift horse, watching the city through a long contraption of lenses that made the distance seem closer. Like a nautilus spiral, we cycled inward, seeing all the sane folk of the city evacuating, bottlenecks of traffic on every major street. Further in, a dead masker. Beside his body crouched a woman, alone, weeping. Mother. In. Godlings in the streets, helping their chosen, helping any who asked, doing what they could, not doing enough. We have always been far better at destroying than protecting. Further in, maskers now, the ones whose bodies had been old or infirm. They straggled behind their more able comrades, hobbling toward the tree. In, in, dead soldiers here, in the sigil marked white of the hundred thousand legions. They littered the salon steps, lay disemboweled on the promenade stones, hung from the windows of nearby buildings, one with a crossbow still in his hand though his head was gone. In. The world tree. Its trunk was infested with tiny crawling mites that had once been thinking mortals. The maskers climbed with a strength that mortal flesh should not have possessed, and indeed, a few of them did not. We saw them fall, the magic burning out their bodies. But more of them clung securely to the thick, rough bark, and more still made the climb steadily. It was only a half mile to sky straight up. Some of the maskers were more than halfway there. Shahar saw this and screamed, die, and we screamed with her. We swept our infinite hand over the tree, knocking the insects away, dozens, hundreds. Because they were already dead, some got up and began climbing again. We crushed them. Then we turned outward again, rushing, raging toward Usain and her warriors. We were greedy for the taste of their fear. They were afraid we saw when we reached them, but not of us. We whirled and saw what they saw, call. He stood in the air over the city, gazing down at what his machinations had wrought. He looked displeased. We were much stronger, exulting. We raised our hand to destroy. My son. And stopped, frozen indecisive for the first time because of me. We had no flesh, so Call did not see us. His lips tightened at the scene below. In one hand, we saw, was the strange mask. It was complete now, and yet not.
Call could hold it with no apparent discomfort, but the thing had no power. Certainly nothing that could forge a new god. He raised a hand, and it was my fault, not ours, mine, for I am a god and I should have known what he was about to do. But I did not think it, and the lives lost will haunt my eternal soul. He sent forth power as a hundred whipcord serpents. Each wove through buildings and stone and sought its lair. A tiny, barely visible notch in all of the masks so small as to be subliminal. We knew across time. We saw Call doing a god's work, whispering into the dreams of the sleeping Demi artists, inspiring them, influencing them. We saw Insana the guide turn, sensing the intrusion upon his realm. But Call was subtle, subtle. He was not discovered. We saw all of the masks glow blue-white and then explode. Too many. Too close to the base of the tree where we had swept the bodies. We screamed as we understood and rushed back, but even gods are not omnipotent. Roiling fire blossomed at the world tree's roots. The shock wave came later, like thunder, echoing, echo, echo. The great shuddering groan of the tree rose slowly, so gradually that we could deny it. We could pretend that it was not too late, right up until the world tree's trunk split, sending splinters like missiles in every direction. Buildings collapsed, streets erupted. The screams of dying mortals mingled with the tree's mournful cry. They were drowned out as the tree listed slowly, gracefully, monstrously. It fell away from shadow which we thought was a blessing, until the tree's crown, massive as mountains, struck the earth. The concussion rippled outward in a wave that destroyed the land in every direction as far as mortal eyes could see. We saw sky shatter into a hundred thousand pieces. And high above us, his face a mask of savage triumph to contrast the mask in his hands. Call. He raised the mask over his head, closing his eyes. It shone now, glimmering and shivering and changing, replete at last with the million or more mortal lives he had just fed it. Its ornamentation and shape flared to form a new archetype, one suggesting implacability and fathomless knowledge and magnificence and quintessential power. Like Nahadoth and Etempis and Yeni if one could somehow strip away their personalities and superficialities to leave only the distilled meaning of them. That meaning was God, the mask's ultimate form and name. We felt the mask call out, and we felt something answer, before call vanished. We dissolved then, Shahar's grief, Decca's anguish, my horror, all the same emotion but the respective reverberations were too powerful individually to meld into the whole of us. With what remained of us, we, I, remembered belatedly that we were in a flying palace that had been built as a floating palace, and either way it would not do well as a falling palace. So we, I, looked around and spied the eyeglass lake, a boring little body of water in the middle of even more boring farmland. It would do. Into this, carefully, we deposited the delicate shell that was Echo. Usain would be pleased, at least, 
The eyeglass was small and unassuming, nothing compared to the ocean's vast grandeur. Only a mile of distance would now separate the palace from the shore. People could swim to it if they wanted. Remeth's plan to isolate the Aramary had backfired. The Aramary, such as remained, would be henceforth more accessible than ever, and far, far closer to the earth. Then we were gone, leaving only Decca and Shahar and I, who stared at one another as the power drained away. We fell as one and sought solace in the void together. 21. Things changed. Decca and Shahar woke a day later. I, for reasons I can only guess at, slept for a week. I was reinstalled in Deka's quarters and reintroduced to my old friend, the feeding tube. I had aged again. Not much this time, just ten years or so. This put me in my early to mid-sixties by my guess. Not that a few years really mattered at that age. In the week that I had slept through, the war ended. Usain sent a message to Echo the day after Skyfall. She did not surrender, but in light of the tragedy, she and her allies were willing to offer a truce. It was not difficult to read between the lines of this. Her faction had intended the deaths of the Aramary and their soldiers, and perhaps some abstract deaths in the future as mortal kind devolved to its endless warring. No one, not even a hardened Dar warrior, had been prepared for the fallen tree, the shattered city, or the wasteland that was now central Sinem. I am told that the Northerners joined in the rescue operations, and they were welcome. Even though they'd inadvertently caused the disaster, everyone who could help was welcome in those first few days. The city's godlings did what they could. They had saved many by transporting them out of the area when the first explosions began. They had saved more by mitigating the damage. The tree's roots had nearly torn free of the earth when it fell. If the stump had uprooted, there would have been no rubble from which to rescue survivors, only a city-sized, freshly turned grave. The godlings worked tirelessly thereafter, entering the most damaged parts of the city and sniffing out the fading sense of life, holding up sagging buildings, teaching the scriveners and bonebenders magic that would save many lives in the days to follow. Godlings from other lands came to help, and even a few from the gods' realm. Despite this, of all of the mortals that had once populated Sky and Shadow, only a few thousand survived. Shahar, in her first act as the family head, did something at once stupid and brilliant. She ordered that Echo be opened to the survivors. Wrath protested this vehemently and finally prevailed in getting Shahar and the rest of the Highbloods to relocate to the center of the palace. The world and its surrounding buildings, which would be guarded by Wrath's men, and the handful of remaining soldiers who had come with the survivors. The rest of Echo was ceded to wounded, heart-lost mortals, many of them still covered in dust and blood, who gratefully slept in beds that made themselves and ate food that appeared whenever they wished for it. These were small comforts and no consolation given what they had suffered. In the days that followed, Shahar convened an emergency session of the nobles' consortium and blatantly asked for help. The people of Shadow could rebuild, she said, with time to heal and sufficient assistance. But more than goods and food, 
they needed something the Era Mary could not provide. Peace. So she asked the assembled nobles to put aside their differences with each other and the Era Mary and to remember the best principles of the bright. It was, I am told, an amazing stirring speech. The proof of this lies in the fact that they listened to her. Caravans of supplies and troops of volunteers began arriving within the week. There was no more talk of rebellion, only for the time being, but even that was a significant concession. They may have been motivated by more than Shahar's words, however. There was a new object in sky, and it was drawing closer. A week after I awoke, when I was feeling strong enough, I left Echo. Some godling, don't know which, had stretched a tongue of daystone from the palace's entrance to the lake shore, wide enough for carriages and pack animals. Nowhere near as elegant as Sky's vertical gate, but it worked. Deka, who needed a break from the frenetic work of the past few weeks, decided to come with me. I considered trying to persuade him otherwise, but when I turned to him and opened my mouth, he gave me such a challenging look that I closed it again. It took us an hour to walk over the bridge, and we spoke little on the way. In the distance, we could see the humped, distorted shape of the fallen tree through the morning haze. Neither of us looked in that direction often. Closer by, a fledgling city had already begun to develop around Echo and its lake. Not all the survivors wanted to live in Echo, so they had built tents and makeshift huts on the shore in order to stay close to family or new-made friends in the palace. A kind of market had developed amid this camp as a result, not far from the bridge's terminus. Deka and I rented two horses from a caravaner who'd set up a stall, two fine mounts for the young man and his grandfather, the proprietor said, trying to be friendly, and began our journey which would supposedly take only a day. We had no escorts or guards. We were not that important. Just as well, I wanted privacy to think. The road we'd chosen to take, once the main thoroughfare between the city and its surrounding provinces, was badly damaged. We rode across humped pavement and patches of rubble that forced us to dismount frequently and check the horses' hooves for stones. In one place, the road simply split, falling away into a chasm that was unpleasantly deep. I was fine with going around it. There was nothing but ruined farmland in the vicinity so it wasn't as though the detour would take long. Deka, however, in a rare show of temper, spoke to the rocks and got them to form a narrow, solid bridge across the gap. We crossed before I muttered something to Deka along the lines that he should really be less quick to use magic to solve problems. He only looked at me, and I hunched. It had just seemed like the sort of thing an older man should say to a younger one. We moved on. By afternoon, we reached the outskirts of the city. It was harder going here, and the damage slowed us down. Every street that had once been cobbled was rubble. The sidewalks were death traps where we could even find streets. I caught a glimpse of the utter ruin that was South Route and despaired. There was a chance, a slim one, that Himen and her family had gotten out before Skyfall. I would pray for Yaney to watch over them, alive or dead. We did not want the city itself in any case, so it was easier to skirt around the worst parts, using the outlying districts to make our way. These had been the homes and estates of the middling wealthy, too poor to build on the world tree's trunk, 
but rich enough to buy the better sunlight that could be had farther from the roots. This made things easier, because they had wide lawns and dirt paths that the horses could manage. There was plenty of sunlight now. Eventually, we reached the trunk itself, a long, low mountain laid along the earth, as far as the eye could see. We surprised our first survivors here, since the rest of the area had been thoroughly abandoned, scavengers picking through the ruins of the mansions that had once been attached to the tree. They glared at us and pointedly fingered hatchet handles and machetes. We courteously gave them a wide berth. Everyone was happy. Then we reached Sky, where, to my surprise, we were not alone. We smelled Ahad's reeking cheroot before we saw him, though the scent was different this time. My nose was not what it had been, so it was only when I got close that I understood that he'd put cloves in the thing to make the smell less offensive. I realized why when I noticed that the smoke was mingled with Glee Shoth's Hyrus flower perfume. They likely heard the horses before we came into sight, but did not bother to alter their position. So we found Ahad draped atop one of the nearer, smaller piles of rubble, as though it was a throne. Behind him was Glee. He leaned back against her, his head pillowed on her breasts. She had propped one elbow on a smooth piece of daystone, her free hand idly combing his loose hair. His expression was as cold as usual, but I didn't buy it this time. There was too much vulnerability in his posture, too much trust in the way he'd let Glee hold his weight. I saw too much wariness in his eyes. He could not hide some things from me, which was probably why he hadn't bothered to try. But he would kill me, I suspect, if I dared comment on it. So I didn't. If you've come to dance on this grave, you're too late, he said, as we dismounted and came to look up at them. I already did it. Good, I said, nodding to Glee, who nodded silently back. She, unlike Ahad, did not bother to hide the pride she felt in him, and there was a decided smug possessiveness in the way she stroked his hair that reminded me fleetingly of a tempest back when he'd held Nahadoth's affections. I stretched and grimaced as my knees twinged after the long ride. I'm not really up to dancing anymore. Yes. You do look like shit, don't you? He exhaled a long, curling stream of smoke, and I saw him consider whether to hurt me further. There were so many ways he could have done it with a casual comment. So it turns out you're an even worse father than I thought. Or perhaps, glad to know I wasn't your first mistake. I braced myself as best I could, though there was really nothing I could do. According to Deka, I was still aging faster than I should have been perhaps ten days for every one. Merely knowing that I was a father was a relentless poison that would kill me in a year, two at the most. Not that any of us had so long to wait. Ahad said nothing to my relief. Either he was feeling magnanimous, or Glee had begun to mellow him. Or perhaps he simply saw no point under the circumstances. Hello, said Deka. He was staring at Ahad, and belatedly, I remember that I'd never gotten around to telling him about his origins. My long-lost son's attempt to destroy the universe had been a bit distracting. Ahad sat up, eyeing the boy. After a moment, a slow smile spread across his face. Well, well, well. You would be Dakarta Aramari.
I am. Deka said this stiffly, trying and failing to conceal his fascination. They did not look wholly alike, but the resemblance was close enough to defy coincidence. And you are? Ahad spread his arms. Call me Grandpa. Deka stiffened. Glee threw an exasperated look at the back of Ahad's head. I sighed and rubbed my eyes. Deka, I'll explain later. Yes, he said, you will. But he folded his arms and looked away from Ahad, and Ahad uttered a sigh of disappointment. I wasn't sure whether he really minded Deka's disinterest or was just using another opportunity to needle the boy. We fell silent then, as was proper at graveside. I gazed at the great piles of tumbled daystone and slipped my hands into my pockets, wondering at the feelings within me. I had loathed Sky for all the years of my incarceration. Within its white walls, I had been starved, raped, flayed, and worse. I had been a god reduced to a possession, and the humiliation of those days had not left me despite a hundred years of freedom. And yet, I remembered my orrery and N pulsed in gentle sympathy against my chest. I remembered running through Skye's wild, curving dead spaces, making them my own. I had found Yaney here without thinking. I began to hum the lullaby I had once sung her. It had not all been suffering and horror. Life is never only one thing. A hot sighed above me. Skye had been his home once. Deka touched my hand. Same for him. None of us mourned alone, for however long that mourning might last. Above us, halfway between the sun and the faint early risen moon, we could all see the peculiar smudge that had grown steadily larger since the day of Call's victory. It was not a thing that could be described easily, in either Senmite or the god's language. A streaking transparency, a space of wavering nothingness, leaving nothingness in its wake. We could feel it, too like an itch on the skin. Hear it, like words sung just out of hearing. But it would not be long now before we all heard it, more clearly than any sane being would want. Its roar would eclipse the world. The maelstrom. Call had summoned it. And it was coming. After a time, during which the sun set and the early stars began to show, Ahad sighed and got to his feet, turning to help Glee to hers. They flickered to the ground, which made Deka start, then inhale as his suspicions were confirmed. Ahad winked at him, then sobered as he turned to me. The others think they can ride out whatever happens in the gods' realm, he said softly. I have my doubts, but I can't blame them for trying. He hesitated, then glanced at Glee. I'm staying here. It was an admission I would have never expected from him. Glee was mortal. She could not survive in our realm. When I glanced at Glee to see if she understood how profound a change she had worked on him, she nodded minutely, lifting her chin in a blatantly protective challenge. Ahad was not the only one of us who could cause pain with a comment. I had no interest in hurting Ahad, however. I'd done enough to him. Perhaps a more productive line of conversation is saving this realm rather than fleeing it, said Deka. And by the edge in his voice, I knew I would get an earful when we were alone. But Ahad shook his head, growing uncharacteristically serious. There's no saving it, he said. 
Not even the three can command the maelstrom. At best, they can stand aside while it punches through the realms and rebuild from whatever's left. Not that that does us much good. He shrugged and sighed, looking up at the sky. The smudge was just visible at night, a waver against the carpet of stars. Beyond it, however, the stars were gone. There was nothing but black void. My father believes it was worthwhile to try and save this realm, said Glee. Deka stared at her, probably guessing more secrets. I really should have told him everything beforehand. More stupidity on my part. Yeni and Nahadoth too, if I know them at all, I sighed. But if they could have stopped it, they would have done so by now. I did not add that I had prayed to both, more than once, in the preceding nights. They had responded with silence. I tried not to worry about what that meant. Well, we better get going. Just came to wish the old hell goodbye. A hot cheroot had finally burned down. He dropped the butt to the ground and stubbed it out with his toe, throwing one final glance at Skye's tumbled bulk behind us. The daystone still glowed at night, ghostly soft radiance to contrast the torn emptiness in the sky above. A fitting marker for mortal kind's grave, I decided. Hopefully Yaney and Naha would find some way to preserve it when the world was gone. Andy Tempest. My mind added to Yaney's and Naha's names. Though of course that was less certain. Perhaps they would let him die with the rest of us. If they were going to, this would be the time. We will see you again, Glee said. I nodded, noticing at last that they were holding hands. Then they vanished, leaving me alone with Deka. Explain, he snapped. I sighed and looked around. It was well and truly night. I hadn't figured on the journey taking as long as it had. We had no supplies with which to make camp. It would be horse blankets on the ground instead. My old bones were going to love that. Let's get comfortable first, I said. His jaw flexed as though he would have preferred to argue, but instead he turned to the horses, bringing them closer to the daystone pile so that they could have some shelter from the wind. We set up on what had been the foundation of a house, blown clean away by the force of the tree's fall. A few small pieces of daystone had landed here, so we gathered them into a pile for light, and Deka murmured a command that made them generate heat as well. I laid out our blankets separately, whereupon Deka promptly moved his over next to mine and pulled me into his arms. Deka, I began. We had shared his bed since my last mortaling, but both of us had been too tired for anything but sleep. Convenient for putting off necessary conversations, but they could not be put off forever. So I took a deep breath and prayed briefly to one of my brothers for strength. You don't have to pretend. I know how it is for young men, and I think, he said, you've been stupid enough lately, Sia. Don't make things worse. At this, I tried to sit up. I couldn't because he wouldn't let me and because my back complained fiercely when I tried. Too much time on horseback. What? You are still the child, he said quietly, and I stopped struggling. And the cat and the man and the monster who smothers children in the dark. So you're an old man, too. Fine. I told you, Sia, I'm not going anywhere. Now lie down. I want to try something. More out of shock than any real obedience, I did as he bade me. 
he slid a hand under my shirt, which made me blush and splutter. Deka, gods, be still. His hand stopped, resting on my chest. It was not a caress, though my stupid old body decided that it was, and further decided that it was not so old after all. I was grateful. At my age, there were no guarantees that certain bodily processes still worked. Deka's expression was still, intent. I had seen the same concentration from him when he spoke magic or drew sigils. This time, however, he began to whisper, and his hand moved in time with his words. Puzzled, I listened to what he was saying, but they were not words. It was not our language, or any language. I had no idea what he was doing. I felt it, though, when words began tickling their way along my skin. When I jumped and tried to sit up, Deka pressed me down, closing his eyes so that my twitching would not distract him. And I did twitch, because it was the most peculiar sensation, like ants crawling over my flesh, if those ants had been flat and made of sibilance. That was when I noticed the soft black glow of Deka's marks, which were more than tattoos, I realized at last. They always had been. But something was not right. The marks he whispered into my flesh did not linger. I felt them wend around my limbs and down my belly, but as soon as they settled into place, they began to fade. I saw Deka's brow furrow, and after a few moments of this, he stopped, his hand on my chest tightening into a fist. I take it that didn't go as expected, I said quietly. No. What did you expect? He shook his head slowly. The marking should have tapped your innate magic. You're still a god. If you weren't, your antithesis wouldn't affect you. I should be able to remind your flesh that its natural state is young, malleable, embodied only by your will. His jaw tightened, and he looked away. I don't understand why it failed. I sighed. There had been no real hope in me, probably because he hadn't told me what he was doing ahead of time. I was glad for that. I thought you wanted me mortal. He shook his head again, his lips thinning. Not if it means you dying, Sia. I never wanted that. Ah. I put my hand over his fist. Thank you for trying, then. But there's no point, Deka, even if you could fix me. Godlings are fragile compared to the three. When the maelstrom breaks this universe, most likely we shut up, he whispered. And I did, blinking. Just shut up, Sia. He was trembling, and there were tears in his eyes. For the first time since his childhood, he looked lost and lonely and more than a little afraid. I was still a god, as he had said. It was my nature to comfort lost children. So I pulled him to me, intending to hold him while he wept. He pushed my hands aside and kissed me. Then, as though the kiss had not been sufficient reminder that he was no child, he sat up and began tugging my clothes off. I could have laughed, or said no, or pretended disinterest. But it was the end of the world, and he was mine. I did what felt good. We would all die in three days, but there was so much that could be done in that time. I was not a true mortal. I knew better than to take Anifa's gift for granted. I would savor every moment of my life that remained, suck its marrow, crunch its bones, and when the end came, well, I would not be alone. That was a precious and holy thing. In the morning, we returned to Echo. 
Dago went to look in on his scriveners and ask again whether they had found some miracle that could save us all. I went in search of Shahar. I found her in the temple, which had finally been dedicated as such. Someone had put an altar in it, right on the spot where Deka and I had first made love. I tried not to think lewd thoughts about human sacrifice as I stopped before it, because I refused to be a dirty old man. Shahar stood beyond the altar, beneath the colored swirl that now cast faintly blue light on us like that of the cloudless sky outside. Her back was to me, though I was certain she'd heard me approach. I'd had to speak to four guards just to get into the room. She did not move until I spoke, however, and then she started, coming out of whatever reverie she'd lapsed into. Friends lie, I said. I spoke softly, but my voice echoed in the high ceiling chamber. It was deeper now with a hoarse edge that would only get worse as I grew older. Lovers, too. But trust can be rebuilt. You are my friend, Shahar. I shouldn't have forgotten that. She said nothing. I sighed and shrugged. I'm a bastard. What do you expect? More silence. I saw the tightness of her shoulders. She folded her arms across her chest. I had seen enough women cry that I recognized the warning signs and decided to leave. But just as I reached the doorway, I heard, friends. I stopped and looked back. She held up her right hand, the one that held mine years ago when we'd taken our oath. I rubbed a thumb across my own tingling palm and smiled. Friends, I said, raising my own. Then I left, because there was something in my eyes, dust probably. I would have to be more careful in the future. Old men had to take good care of their eyes.